Human Nature and Conduct, An Introduction to Social Psychology, Part 4, by John Dewey, published in 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Section 4. Morality is Social. Intelligence becomes ours in the degree in which we use it and accept responsibility for consequences. It is not ours originally or by production. It thinks is a truer psychological statement than I think. Thoughts sprout and vegetate. Ideas proliferate. They come from deep unconscious sources. I think is a statement about voluntary action. Some suggestion surges from the unknown. Our active body of habits appropriates it. The suggestion then becomes an assertion. It no longer merely comes to us. It is accepted and uttered by us. We act upon it, and thereby assume, by implication, its consequences. The stuff of belief and proposition is not originated by us. It comes to us from others, by education, tradition, and the suggestion of the environment. Our intelligence is bound up, so far as its materials are concerned, with the community life of which we are a part. We know what it communicates to us, and know according to the habits it forms in us. Science is an affair of civilization, not of individual intellect. So with conscience. When a child acts, those about him react. They shower encouragement upon him, visit him with approval, or they bestow frowns and rebuke. What others do to us when we act is as natural a consequence of our action as what the fire does to us when we plunge our hands in it. The social environment may be as artificial as you please, but its action in response to ours is natural, not artificial. In language and imagination, we rehearse the responses of others just as we dramatically enact other consequences. We foreknow how others will act, and the foreknowledge is the beginning of judgment passed upon action. We know with them there is conscience. An assembly is formed within our breast which discusses and appraises proposed and performed acts. The community without becomes a forum and tribunal within, a judgment seat of charges, assessments, and exculpations. Our thoughts of our own actions are saturated with the ideas that others entertain about them, ideas which have been expressed not only in explicit instruction, but still more effectively in reaction to our acts. Liability is the beginning of responsibility. We are held accountable by others for the consequences of our acts. They visit their like and dislike of those consequences upon us. In vain do we claim that these are not ours, that they are products of ignorance and not design, or are incidents in the execution of a most laudable scheme. Their authorship is imputed to us. 
we are disproved and disapproval is not an inner state of mind but a most definite act others say to us by their deeds we do not care a fig whether you did this deliberately or not we intend that you shall deliberate before you do it again and that if possible your deliberation shall prevent a repetition of this act we object to the reference in blame in every unfavorable judgment is prospective not retrospective theories about responsibility may become confused but in practice no one is stupid enough to try to change the past approbation and disapprobation are ways of influencing the formation of habits and aims that is of influencing future acts the individual is held accountable for what he has done in order that he may be responsive in what he is going to do gradually persons learn by dramatic imitation to hold themselves accountable and liability becomes a voluntary deliberate acknowledgment that our deeds are our own that their consequences come from us these two facts that moral judgment and moral responsibility are the work wrought in us by the social environment signify that all morality is social not because we ought to take into account the effect of our acts upon the welfare of others but because of facts others do take account of what we do and they respond accordingly to our acts their responses actually do affect the meaning of what we do the significance thus contributed is as inevitable as is the effect of interaction with the physical environment in fact as civilization advances the physical environment gets itself more and more humanized for the meaning of physical energies and events becomes involved with the part they play in human activities our conduct is socially conditioned whether we perceive the fact or not the effect of custom on habit and of habit upon thought is enough to prove this statement when we begin to forecast consequences the consequences that most stand out are those which will proceed from other people the resistance and the cooperation of others is the central fact in the furtherance or failure of our schemes connections with our fellows furnish both the opportunities for action and the instrumentalities by which we take advantage of opportunity all of the actions of an individual bear the stamp of his community as assuredly as does the language he speaks difficulty in reading the stamp is due to variety of impressions in consequence of membership in many groups the social saturation is i repeat a matter of fact not of what should be not of what is desirable or undesirable it does not guarantee the rightness or goodness of an act there is no excuse for thinking of evil action as individualistic and right action as social deliberate unscrupulous pursuit of self-interest is as much conditioned upon social opportunities training and assistance as is the course of action prompted by a beaming benevolence the difference lies in the quality and degree 
of the perception of ties and interdependency in the use to which they are put consider the form commonly assumed today by self-seeking namely command of money and economic power money is a social institution property is a legal custom economic opportunities are dependent upon the state of society the objects aimed at the rewards sought for are what they are because of social admiration prestige competition and power if money-making is morally obnoxious it is because the way these social facts are handled not because a money-making man has withdrawn from society into an isolated selfhood or turned his back upon society his individualism is not found in his original nature but in his habits acquired under social influences it is found in his concrete aims and these are reflexes of social conditions well-grounded moral objection to a mode of conduct rests upon the kind of social connections that figure not upon lack of social aim a man may attempt to utilize social relationships for his own advantage in an inequitable way he may intentionally or unconsciously try to make them feed one of his own appetites then he is denounced as egoistic but both his course of action and the disapproval he is subject to are facts within society they are social phenomena he pursues his unjust advantage as a social asset explicit recognition of this fact is a prerequisite of improvement in moral education and of an intelligent understanding of the chief ideas or categories of morals morals is as much a matter of interaction of a person with his social environment as walking is an interaction of legs with a physical environment the character of walking depends upon the strength and competency of legs but also it depends upon whether a man is walking in a bog or on a paved street upon whether there is a safeguarded path set aside or whether he has to walk amid dangerous vehicles if the standard of morals is low it is because the education given by the interaction of the individual with his social environment is defective of what avail is it to preach unassuming simplicity and contentment of life when communal admiration goes to the man who succeeds who makes himself conspicuous and envied because of command of money and other forms of power if a child gets on by peevishness or intrigue then others are his accomplices who assist in the habits which are built up the notion that an abstract ready-made conscience exists in individuals and that it is only necessary to make an occasional appeal to it and to indulge in occasional crude rebukes and punishments is associated with the causes of lack of definitive and orderly moral advance for it is associated with lack of attention to social forces there is a peculiar inconsistency in the current idea that morals ought to be social the introduction of the moral ought into the idea contains an implicit assertion that morals depend upon something apart from social relations morals are social 
the question of ought should be is a question of better and worse in social affairs the extent to which the weight of theories has been thrown against the perception of the place of social ties and connections in moral activity is a fair measure of the extent to which social forces work blindly and develop an accidental morality the chief obstacle for example to recognizing the truth of a proposition frequently set forth in these pages to the effect that all conduct is potential if not actual matter of moral judgment is the habit of identifying moral judgment with praise and blame so great is the influence of this habit that it is safe to say that every professed moralist when he leaves the pages of theory and faces some actual item of his own and others behavior first or instinctively thinks of acts as moral or non-moral and the degree in which they are exposed to condemnation or approval now this kind of judgment is certainly not one which could profitably be dispensed with its influence is much needed but the tendency to equate it with all moral judgment is largely responsible for the current idea that there is a sharp line between moral conduct and a larger region of non-moral conduct which is a matter of expediency shrewdness success or manners moreover this tendency is a chief reason why the social forces effective in shaping actual morality work blindly and unsatisfactorily judgment in which the emphasis falls upon blame and approbation has more heat than light it is more emotional than intellectual it is guided by custom personal convenience and resentment rather than by insight into causes and consequences it makes toward reducing moral instruction the educative influence of social opinion to an immediate personal matter that is to say to an adjustment of personal likes and dislikes fault-finding creates resentment in the one blamed and approval and complacency rather than a habit of scrutinizing conduct objectively it puts those who are sensitive to the judgment of others in a standing defensive attitude creating an apologetic self-accusing and self-exculpating habit of mind when what is needed is an impersonal impartial habit of observation moral persons get so occupied with defending their conduct from real and imagined criticism that they have little time left to see what their acts really amount to and the habit of self-blame inevitably extends to include others since it is a habit now it is a wholesome thing for anyone to be made aware that thoughtless self-centered action on his part exposes him to the indignation and dislike of others there is no one who can be safely trusted to be exempt from immediate reactions of criticism and there are few who do not need to be braced by occasional expressions of approval but these influences are immensely overdone in comparison with the assistance that might be given by the influence of social judgments which operate without accompaniments of praise and blame which enable an individual to see for himself what he is doing 
and which put him in command of a method of analyzing the obscure and usually unavowed forces which move him to act. We need a permeation of judgments on conduct by the method and materials of a science of human nature. Without such enlightenment, even the best-intentioned attempts at the moral guidance and improvement of others often eventuate in tragedies of misunderstanding and division, as is so often seen in the relations of parents and children. The development, therefore, of a more adequate science of human nature is a matter of first-rate importance. The present revolt against the notion that psychology is a science of consciousness may well turn out in the future to be the beginning of a definitive turn in thought and action. Historically, there are good reasons for the isolation and exaggeration of the conscious phase of human action, an isolation which forgot that conscious is an adjective of some acts and which erected the resulting abstraction consciousness into a noun, an existence separate and complete. These reasons are interesting not only to the student of technical philosophy, but also to the student of the history of culture and even politics. They have to do with the attempt to drag realities out of occult essences and hidden forces and get them into the light of day. They were part of the general movement called phenomenalism and of the growing importance of individual life and private voluntary concerns. But the effect was to isolate the individual from his connections, both with his fellows and with nature, and thus to create an artificial human nature, one not capable of being understood and effectively directed on the basis of analytic understanding. It shut out from you, not to say from scientific examination, the forces which really move human nature. It took a few surface phenomena for the whole story of significant human motive forces and acts. As a consequence, physical science and its technological applications were highly developed while the science of man, moral science, is backward. I believe that it is not possible to estimate how much of the difficulties of the present world situation are due to the disproportion and unbalance thus introduced into affairs. It would have seemed absurd to say in the seventeenth century that in the end the alteration in methods of physical investigation, which was then beginning, would prove more important than the religious wars of that century. Yet the wars marked the end of one era, the dawn of physical science the beginning of a new one, and a trained imagination may discover that the nationalistic and economic wars which are the chief outward mark of the present are in the end to be less significant than the development of a science of human nature now inchoate. It sounds academic to say that substantial bearing of social relations waits upon the growth of a scientific social psychology, for the term suggests something specialized and remote. But the formation of habits, of belief, desire, and judgment, is going on at every instant under the influence of the conditions set by men's contact 
intercourse and associations with one another this is the fundamental fact in social life and in personal character it is the fact about which traditional human science gives no enlightenment a fact which this traditional science blurs and virtually denies the enormous role played in popular morals by appeal to the supernatural and quasi-magical is in effect a desperate admission of the futility of our science consequently the whole matter of the formation of the predispositions which effectively control human relationships is left to accident to custom and immediate personal likings resentments and ambitions it is a commonplace that modern industry and commerce are conditioned upon a control of physical energies due to proper methods of physical inquiry and analysis we have no social arts which are comparable because we have so nearly nothing in the way of psychological science yet through the development of physical science and especially of chemistry biology physiology medicine and anthropology we now have the basis for the development of such a science of man signs of its coming into existence are present in the movements in clinical behavioristic and social in its narrowest sense psychology at present we not only have no assured means of forming character except crude devices of blame praise exhortation and punishment but the very meaning of the general notions of moral inquiry is matter of doubt and dispute the reason is that these notions are discussed in isolation from the concrete facts of the interactions of human beings with one another an abstraction as fatal as was the old discussion of phlogiston gravity and vital force apart from concrete correlations of changing events with one another take for example such a basic conception as that of right involving the nature of authority in conduct there is no need here to rehearse the multitude of contending views which give evidence that discussion of this matter is still in the realm of opinion we content ourselves with pointing out that this notion is the last resort of the anti-empirical school in morals and that it proves the effect of neglect in social conditions in effect its adherents argue as follows let us concede that concrete ideas about right and wrong and particular notions of what is obligatory have grown up within experience but we cannot admit this about the idea of right of obligation itself why does moral authority exist at all why is the claim of the right recognized in conscience even by those who violate it indeed our opponents say that such and such a course is wise expedient better but why act for the wise or good or better why not follow our own immediate devices if we are so inclined there is only one answer we have a moral nature a conscience call it what you will and this nature responds directly in acknowledgment of the supreme authority of the right over all claims of inclination and habit we may not act in accordance with this acknowledgment 
but we still know that the authority of moral law, although not its power, is unquestionable. Men may differ indefinitely according to what their experience has been as to just what is right, what its contents are, but they all spontaneously agree in recognizing the supremacy of the claims of whatever is thought of as right. Otherwise there would be no such thing as morality, but merely calculations of how to satisfy desire. Grant the foregoing argument, and all the apparatus of abstract moralism follows in its wake. A remote goal of perfection, ideals that are contrary in a wholesale way to what is actual, a free will of arbitrary choice. All of these conceptions band themselves together with that of a non-empirical authority of right and a non-empirical conscience which acknowledges it. They constitute its ceremonial or formal train. Why, indeed, acknowledge the authority of right? That many persons do not acknowledge it in fact, in action, and that all persons ignore it at times, is assumed by the argument. Just what is the significance of an alleged recognition of a supremacy which is continually denied in fact? How much would be lost if it were dropped out and we were left face to face with actual facts? If a man lived alone in the world, there might be some sense in the question, why be moral? Were it not for one thing, no such question would then arise. As it is, we live in a world where other persons live too. Our acts affect them. They perceive these effects and react upon us in consequence. Because they are living beings, they make demands upon us for certain things from us. They approve and condemn, not in abstract theory, but in what they do to us. The answer to the question, why not put your hand in the fire, is the answer of fact. If you do, your hand will be burnt. The answer to the question, why acknowledge the right, is of the same sort. For right is only an abstract name for the multitude of concrete demands in action which others impress upon us, and of which we are obliged, if we would live, to take some account. Its authority is the exigency of their demands, the efficacy of their insistencies. There may be good ground for the contention that in theory the idea of the right is subordinate to that of the good, being a statement of the course proper to attain good, but in fact it signifies the totality of social pressures exercised upon us to induce us to think and desire in certain ways. Hence the right can in fact become the road to the good only as the elements that compose this unremitting pressure are enlightened, and only as social relationships become themselves reasonable. It will be retorted that all pressure is a non-moral affair partaking of force, not of right, that right must be ideal. Thus we are invited to enter again the circle in which the ideal has no force and social actualities no ideal quality. We refuse the invitation 
because social pressure is involved in our own lives as much as the air we breathe and the ground we walk on. If we had desires, judgments, and plans, in short, a mind, apart from social connections, then the latter would be external, and their action might be regarded as that of a non-moral force. But we live mentally as physically only in and because of our environment. Social pressure is but a name for the interactions which are always going on and in which we participate, living so far as we partake and dying so far as we do not. The pressure is not ideal but empirical, yet empirical here means only actual. It calls attention to the fact that considerations of right are claims originating not outside of life but within it. They are ideal in precisely the same degree in which we intelligently recognize and act upon them, just as colors and canvas become ideal when used in ways that give an added meaning to life. Accordingly, failure to recognize the authority of right means defect in effective apprehension of the realities of human association, not an arbitrary exercise of free will. This deficiency and perversion in apprehension indicates a defect in education, that is to say, in the operation of actual conditions in the consequences upon desire and thought of existing interactions and interdependencies. It is false that every person has a consciousness of the supreme authority of right and then misconceives it or ignores it in action. One has such a sense of the claims of social relationships as those relationships enforce one's desire and observations. The belief in a separate, ideal, or transcendental, practically ineffectual right is a reflex of the inadequacy with which existing institutions perform their educative office, their office in generating observation of social continuities. It is an endeavor to rationalize this defect. Like all rationalizations, it operates to divert attention from the real state of affairs. Thus, it helps maintain the conditions which created it, standing in the way of effort to make our institutions more humane and equitable. A theoretical acknowledgment of the supreme authority of right, of moral law, gets twisted into an effectual substitute for acts which would better the customs which now produce vague, dull, halting, and evasive observation of actual social ties. We are not caught in a circle. We traverse a spiral in which social customs generate some consciousness of interdependencies, and this consciousness is embodied in acts which, in improving the environment, generate new perceptions of social ties, and so on, forever. The relationships, the interactions, are forever there as fact, but they acquire meaning only in the desires, judgments, and purposes they awaken. We recur to our fundamental propositions. Morals is connected with actualities of existence, not with ideals, ends, and obligations independent of concrete actualities. 
the facts upon which it depends are those which arise out of active connections of human beings with one another the consequences of their mutually intertwined activities in life of desire believe judgment satisfaction and dissatisfaction in this sense conduct and hence morals are social they are not just things which ought to be social and which fail to come up to the scratch but there are enormous differences of better and worse in the quality of what is social ideal morals begin with the perception of these differences human interaction and ties are there are operative in any case but they can be regulated employed in an orderly way for good only as we know how to observe them and they cannot be observed aright they cannot be understood and utilized when the mind is left to itself to work without the aid of science for the natural unaided mind means precisely the habits of belief thought and desire which have been accidentally generated and confirmed by social institutions or customs but with all their admixture of accident and reasonableness we have at last reached a point where social conditions create a mind capable of scientific outlook and inquiry to foster and develop this spirit is the social obligation of the present because it is its urgent need yet the last word is not with obligation nor with the future infinite relationships of man with his fellows and with nature already exist the ideal means as we have seen a sense of those encompassing continuities with their infinite reach this meaning even now attach us to present activities because they are set in a whole to which they belong and which belongs to them even in the midst of conflict struggle and defeat a consciousness is possible of the enduring and comprehending whole to be grasped and held this consciousness needs like every form of consciousness objects and symbols in the past men have sought many symbols which no longer serve especially since men have been idolaters worshipping symbols as things yet within these symbols which have so often claimed to be realities and which have imposed themselves as dogmas and intolerances there has rarely been absent some trace of a vital and enduring reality that of a community of life in which continuities of existence are consummated consciousness of the whole has been connected with reverences affections and loyalties which are communal but special ways of expressing the communal sense have been established they have been limited to a select social group they have hardened into obligatory rites and been imposed as conditions of salvation religion has lost itself in cults dogmas and myths consequently the office of religion as sense of community and one's place in it has been lost in effect religion has been distorted to a possession or burden of a limited part of human nature of a limited portion of humanity which finds no way to universalize religion except by imposing its own dogmas and ceremonies upon others of a limited class within a partial group 
priests, saints, a church. Thus other gods have been set up before the one God. Religion as a sense of the whole is the most individualized of all things, the most spontaneous, undefinable, and varied. For individuality signifies unique connections in the whole. It has been perverted into something uniform and immutable. It has been formulated into fixed and defined beliefs expressed in required acts and ceremonies. Instead of marking the freedom and peace of the individual as a member of an infinite whole, it has been petrified into a slavery of thought and sentiment, an intolerant superiority on the part of the few, and an intolerable burden on the part of the many. Yet every act may carry within itself a consoling and supporting consciousness of the whole to which it belongs and which in some sense belongs to it. With responsibility for the intelligent determination of particular acts may go a joyful emancipation from the burden for responsibility for the whole which sustains them, giving them their final outcome and quality. There is a conceit fostered by perversion of religion which assimilates the universe to our personal desires but there is also a conceit of carrying the load of the universe from which religion liberates us within the flickering and inconsequential acts of separate selves dwells a sense of the whole which claims and dignifies them in its presence we put off morality and live in the universal the life of the community in which we live and have our being is the fit symbol of this relationship the acts in which we express our perception of the ties which bind us to others are its only rites and ceremonies end of section four morality is social end of book human nature and conduct an introduction to social psychology by john dewey